Okay, so we have three classes left. That's it. So today, Wednesday, and the next Monday. Um, we are going to now talk, so there's no more homework, right? And the content of our last three lectures will be on various modern applications of some of the things that we've learned. Uh, today, that's going to be laser frequency stabilization. There's some discussion of this in chapter 14 of the textbook, so this is listed as chapter 14 notes, and I've also included atomic and molecular optics, because that's also, so that's in this set of notes, because that's also in your textbook in chapter 14. Uh, we're not going to do atomic and molecular optics today. We will do this today. Uh, next Wednesday or Wednesday, we will do LIDAR, which is remote laser and distance ranging, basically uh, shooting a laser a distance away into the atmosphere or onto the ground from an airplane, doing some spectroscopy of what comes back. And then the following, the last day of, of class, we may come back to the set of notes and do atomic and molecular optics. Uh, so that's time permitting. Um, so if you printed out this set of notes, hang on to them, continue to bring them to class, we may get, come back to them. Okay, so uh, we'll talk about frequency locking, what it means to lock a laser frequency, why it's, it's a useful thing to do, um, and a couple different ways of doing it. One is locking it to a reference cavity, and the other is locking it to a molecular transition. So the molecular transition means locking the laser frequency to a particular absorption line. Okay, so uh, lasers we tend to think of as being monochromatic. Right. Uh, we learned earlier in the semester that that's not entirely true. The line width of a laser is limited by a couple different things. There's uh, atomic absorption profiles have some spectral width to them. They're not pure delta functions. So we explored that and some of the things that limited the width. And we also saw that lasers uh, have a line that's limited by the uh, line width of the cavity that uh, oscillates the light through that gain material. So both of those things can limit the line width of a laser and make it not entirely monochromatic or not uh, truly delta function-like in terms of its frequency components. And furthermore, the frequency, or if you like, the wavelength of a laser is not constant in time. It has uh, fluctuations on it. And at high frequency, we call those fluctuations jitter. At low frequency, we call it drift. It's really the same thing. It's, it's the frequency not being a constant. Um, that's an issue for a number of reasons. Primarily, we tend to use lasers as, uh, as meter sticks. For a number of uh, precision measurements, the wavelength of a laser is used as a standard of, of length. Um, higher precision measurements, things that really attempt to have the same the precision limited by the definition of a, the time standard um, really require laser wavelength laser frequencies be locked precisely to the various standards that define the unit of time. Um, so up until 1984, the unit of length was based on the wavelength of a helium neon laser. It's no longer the case. The unit of length is now defined as the distance light travels in some fraction of a second. So that fraction of a second is, uh, is the period of a cesium transition. So 
Atomic cesium is used as a frequency standard or a time standard, if you like. So a second is defined, de defined in terms of uh, the transition frequency between two levels of atomic cesium. Once the second is defined, the speed of light is a constant. The meter then becomes defined in terms of the uh, atomic levels in cesium. So if you're experimentally making a measurement of something's length using a laser, you'd like the wavelength of that laser to be referenced back to some standard, like a cesium atomic clock. So um, that will not be the case if the laser frequency is drifting all around. If it's not uh, truly constant and controlled. So some examples of measurements where it's really necessary to control the laser frequency are anything that attempts to use the laser as a sort of uh, length standard with precision limited by that of the atomic clock. Um, an example of that is gravitational wave detectors. Uh, we'll see examples of how that's done. I mentioned that. That's the, uh, the field that I work in. LIDAR, which we'll discuss next week, or I guess on Wednesday, um, is another example. And next week we'll cover atomic and molecular optics. So cooling and trapping of atoms is critical to that. And all these types of experiments, these classes of experiments, require frequency-stabilized lasers. So there's various ways to stabilize the laser frequency. Some of them are passive, where you basically filter the laser um, and control its frequency that way, or, or limit the fluctuations that way. And others are active, where you measure the frequency and then somehow feed back to the laser and adjust its frequency uh, to keep the deviations within an acceptable range. Okay, So let's look at uh, our description of laser frequency noise. If we were to look at the Fourier transform, or the, the, the spectrum of a laser, we know that there should be uh, some line width of that laser. It's likely limited by the uh, line width of the cavity in the laser, the laser cavity. And we might not see uh, the line width of the cavity. We might see something like this blue curve, which is wider than that. One of the reasons it might be wider is that the cavity's length is fluctuating. The position, or the resonant frequency, so the position of this line center, can drift around. And if our measurement is slow compared to the rate at which it's drifting around, what we will see is sort of the, uh, the smearing out of that spectral line, or that laser line, during the time over which we, we measure. So no different than taking a photograph of something that's fast moving with a slow moving shutter. You see bl blurring of the, the detail. And that's what we see here. So that's what we would typically call jitter. It's uh, fast fluctuations in the laser frequency. So fast compared to our detector, um, whatever detector we're using. And then slow frequencies, drifts, um, would be where you can measure this uh, this line shape, but in repeated measurements, it, it's at a different frequency. So drift is uh, changes in the frequency that are slow compared to the, the measurement time. And so you might, for example, uh, at one particular time, measure the frequency 
of the laser and record the center frequency, and then at a later period in time, repeat that measurement and plot out some frequency that's changing as a function of time. So we call that drift. Right, so both of these are issues. Um, this is sort of an issue in the um, accuracy of an experiment. It's using uh, a laser as a frequency standard. And this would affect the precision and the repeatability of the experiment when done sort of from day to day or hour to hour. So we'd like to be able to uh, eliminate or suppress both of these sources of frequency noise. Okay, so it's useful to understand uh, what some of the causes of this frequency noise are. Some of these can be reduced or eliminated. Um, a source of noise that can be reduced is called technical noise. Through some clever engineering, you can reduce the amount of technical noise. So the opposite of that is fundamental noise, which usually comes from quantum mechanics that just cannot be suppressed with any clever engineering. Okay, so a couple things that might happen. You might have the, um, the laser line limited by the uh, atomic resonance. If that's the case, then anything that affects the uh, line width of the atomic resonance, so Doppler broadening, collisional broadening, any of our broadening mechanisms would also broaden the laser line. Or uh, more likely for typical lasers, it's the laser cavity that limits the line width. And then anything that affects the laser cavity resonant frequency will affect the laser frequency. So the resonant frequency of a cavity is a function of its length. Anything that affects its length, like acoustic excitations, so sound waves driving the mirrors back and forth, shaking them, will affect the length of the cavity. Uh, mechanical excitations, due to either the ground moving around, and usually your optics are on a table or something that's attached to the ground, so they can vibrate due to ground motion, um, due to motion of uh, air flowing in the cavity or cooling water. If you have a high power laser, you often have it uh, water cooled. So if you have turbulent flow of water over the top of your laser, that can shake things inside of the laser and introduce small, but um, I mean, small on sort of a human scale, but uh, significant variations to the laser cavity length. Um, even things like the change in the index of refraction of the air due to thermal gradients and, and, and pressure gradients in the, in the laser cavity can produce effects. Okay, so to some extent, these can be minimized by clever design. So you can imagine how to minimize acoustic excitation. What might you do? Well, that would, uh, I know what you're, you're getting at, that would minimize coupling from ground motion to the motion, but acoustic excitations, the number one thing you do is be quiet. And whether that means putting some sort of foam around it or just operating it in a place where there's low acoustic noise levels. Um, turbulence of cooling water, if you can design your cooling water to be laminar, um, that helps. Index of refraction changes due to air turbulence. If you can evacuate the air out of your laser, that helps. Uh, I have 60 hertz line noise on the pump diodes being a source of, of 
of noise. You can drive your laser diodes by battery or filter the power supply so that you've got uh, as much suppression of the line noise as possible. All those things can improve the performance of, uh, of a laser, it's, it's frequency noise. And it may be possible through such uh, engineering mechanisms to reach some acceptable frequency noise level, depending on the experiment that you're doing. But there's other more fundamental sources of noise. Even after you eliminate all these, uh, these technical sources of noise are still present. So one form of uh, laser frequency noise comes from spontaneous emission in the laser material. And so let's consider a phasor diagram for the light coming out of your laser. And let's let this blue phasor here be the, the electric field coming out of the laser. So it has a certain amplitude. And at the moment in time, it has a certain phase. Right? But it's oscillating. So it's this phasor is rotating around at optical frequencies. So I'm just taking a snapshot of it at one moment in time. And the output of the laser is due to stimulated emission. So we have stimulated emission. Most of the power that's in the lasing material is getting pulled out through the stimulated emission. There's still spontaneous emission. That spontaneous emission, though, is just, we often think of it as negligible compared to the, to the stimulated emission. Most of the energy is being pulled out through the stimulated emission. If we also have this spontaneous emission adding to this, the phase of that spontaneous emission is arbitrary compared to the stimulated emission. There's no connection between them. It could have any possible phase. And so if we quantum mechanically, the magnitude of this spontaneous emission is, one, is that of one photon, a single photon. So your laser might have 10 to the 20 photons. And so this line might be, um, well, so the electric field is proportional to the square root of the number of photons. It's square root of power. So this line might be uh, 10 orders of magnitude larger than that one. But because we don't know the phase of this, it could point this way, this way, this, any direction. So the total electric field that we see, which is actually what, what comes out of the laser, which is the sum of those, has some uncertainty and angle, right? It can be, let's say this is one part in 10 to the 10th of this. That angle could vary by one part in 10 to the 10th this way or one part in 10 to the 10th that way. It's the exact same mechanism that produces shot noise. And that uncertainty in phase, as this whole thing rotates around, means there's an uncertainty in frequency variation in the, in the frequency. Um, so that's a mechanism that produces frequency noise. Also, just if you were to measure the position of this laser spot, um, there'd be pointing noise as well. So fluctuations in the, the angle. And some of those are technical. Again, things like acoustic noise can cause the mirrors to, to have some tilt, it's time varying. But there's also 
spontaneous emission into not only the, let's say, the TEM00 mode of the laser, which is the mode that we think of as the, the laser beam, but into the higher order modes. So consider a single photon in the TEM10 mode. When we add that to the TEM00 mode, it's going to change the shape of the sum. Right? So as drawn here on the right side, where the modes are both positive, they increase the value. And then the left side, where one is positive, one's negative, the values decrease. And it's equivalent to this TEM00 mode moving to one side. Of course, depending on the phase of this spontaneously emitted photon, it could move to the other side as well, if there was a 180 degree phase shift of this, this mode. So you get pointing jitter. And that can't be suppressed. It can't be designed away. OK, so one thing you can do is try to operate in a quiet environment. But sometimes the easier thing to do is just to measure the output noise and then feedback and adjust the laser frequency to compensate. Um, OK, so what I'm going to describe now is a general control system based on negative feedback that's applicable to laser frequency stabilization, but it's also applicable to anything that needs to be controlled. So the example I like to use is a thermostat. A thermostat is a control system. It controls the temperature of a room. Right, so what's the basic flow diagram for how a thermostat works? Does anyone want to? So well, let's say it can do both. Let's say we have a heater and an air conditioner. So what do you need to control the temperature of this room to be? OK, so you need a detector. OK, so we'll have a temperature that we're detecting, so we'll call it uh, T. So we get some value. What do we do with that? OK, so we need a reference. So we can uh, well, let's say we let's say we've set it so it's always at 70 degrees. So we'll only have one reference. It'll be the 70 degree reference. So we'll take the difference. Are we going to get a positive value or a negative value? Um, let's write it like this. So if we have a positive value, it means it's too hot in the room. If we have a negative value, it's too cold. So I'll call this delta T some measurement of the difference between our detected temperature and the reference. And then what do we do with that? OK. So we actuate. So we need a temperature actuator. That could be a heater or an air conditioner. And that changes the temperature in the room. Right, so what we have is called a closed loop feedback circuit. So you can see there's this loop that's closed. If you open it, if you disconnect the detector from our reference, it will no longer work. 
you just, if you break any part of the loop, it no longer works. Okay, this closed loop um, and here a similar control scheme is drawn for a uh, with, with terms that are useful for laser frequency stabilization. So we have some free-running laser frequency. So free-running means without any, without any control applied. That's adjustable. So think of this as your heater or air conditioner that can change that. So the actual output of the laser is the sum of what it would be without any adjustment plus the effect of any adjustment. So here's our laser output. We compare that to a frequency reference. We take the difference. That difference we call the error signal. It tells us how much of an error there is between the actual laser frequency and the desired laser frequency. That error we amplify. So we multiply by some gain g and we invert. So if the frequency is too high, we produce a control signal that's going to make the frequency smaller. So a positive change in the laser frequency produces a negative change in the control signal. And that's where the term negative feedback comes from. The feedback to the system is always in the opposite direction that, this, that the system is deviating. And that control signal is what we feed back to the laser to adjust the frequency. And again, that's the same block diagram we have over here. You can use that for any sort of control system. Cruise control on a car, uh, temperature stabilization, um, laser frequency stabilization. So some of the issues are, what do we use this for this frequency reference, and how do we do the comparison? Uh, and that, that'll be mostly what we talk about the rest of the, the hour. Okay, so let's try to understand what happens um, to the laser frequency when this control loop is turned on. Okay, so let's start with F sub F is the free running frequency. So frequency sub F, free running frequency. And the output of the laser I'm calling F sub S, and the S is for stabilized. So initially, before I turn this on, okay, it's not stabilized. The output F sub S is the same as F sub F. And I compare that stabilized frequency to my reference frequency, which I'll call F sub R. And the difference between the reference frequency and the stabilized frequency I'll call delta F, which I then amplify by minus G. So my control signal is minus g times delta f. And that's what I feed back in. So now my change in laser frequency here is minus g delta f. Okay, So here's minus g delta f that I'm adding to the free running frequency. So that's what happens here at this summing junction. And that gives me the stabilized laser frequency. Uh, that is the output. So I'm just considering this as a node. The inputs equal the output. Just a logical node. 
And now for this system, what I would expect is when I turn it on, the laser frequency deviates from the reference. It's going to generate an error signal that monitors that, a control signal that tries to compensate for it, and it's going to change the laser frequency and try to drive it back towards the reference. It may overshoot and then come back, and there's some dynamic effects that we're going to neglect. But eventually, it should reach a steady state. And in that steady state, this stabilized output frequency should be the same as this frequency, this stabilized frequency, which was the frequency sort of one loop before. So now, I can take this expression and solve for f sub s, which I've done here. And you can see it has in the denominator 1 minus g. So I will take the limit where g is large. So typical control systems might have a g of uh, a million, something like that. And in that limit, this 1 becomes negligible. The minus g over minus g will cancel and give me 1 times the, f- the reference frequency. And then I have f sub f over g as the deviation from the reference frequency. So what this says is that in a feedback system with large gain, my stabilized frequency is going to equal the reference frequency plus some small deviation. So remember, g is large, so this term becomes small. So really, if g is large enough, the stabilized frequency gets driven to the reference frequency which is what you'd expect, right? Uh, with your, if your thermostat is operating properly, the temperature in the room should be the temperature that it's set at. That's the same thing that we have here. Um, if you consider the deviations from these frequencies, this is perhaps not the easiest way to show it. Probably the easiest way would be to, to differentiate this expression, and then you could just directly get this expression here. The fluctuations in the stabilized frequency, which is the the jitter. So this this sort of addresses the drift. The stabilized frequency becomes that of the reference frequency. If we talk about fast frequency changes, then the deviation from that becomes uh, dominated by the jitter of the reference frequency. So if your reference is not stable, whatever fluctuations there are in the reference will get transferred to the the laser. So you're locking your laser onto a system that has some frequency jitter. Your laser is tracking that. And we'll have the same frequency jitter. Plus an additional term, actually minus, but uh, there is an additional term that contributes some additional jitter. That is, whatever the jitter was in the original laser, this is the free-running frequency, and that gets suppressed by a factor of g. So you have a gain set at 1 million. Your jitter gets suppressed by a factor of a million. And sort of ideally, you could just turn up this gain to the point where this term becomes negligible. And the frequency noise on your laser is limited by that of your reference. You just try to get the best reference you can. 
turn up the gain as high as you need to to make it so that that reference dominates your laser frequency. Um, a couple comments that I won't go into in much detail. You could have an entire class dedicated to the fact that these are all frequency dependent. Um, the gain in particular has to be frequency dependent. Um, the gain always has to go to zero at high frequencies. Can anyone explain why that is? Or let me ask it this way. Um, consider an unintentional feedback system. It consists of a microphone and a PA system. And because the microphone can pick up the sound coming from the PA and that gets amplified and goes back to the PA, you have a feedback loop. Uh, what happens when the gain is turned up too high? Okay, you, get, you get squealing, right? You get the feedback. And the way you avoid that is you turn the gain down. Or you stand, you know, I've got a microphone on, there's no speakers, but I would stand somewhere outside of the acoustic pattern of the speakers, essentially diminishing the round trip gain of that that control signal. If the gain is too high at the frequencies associated with the round trip time of this signal. Right? So there may be some electronics in here and some cables that produce a time delay between uh, when the light comes out of the laser and when it's detected, processed, and fed back. Let's say that takes a nanosecond. Let's, take, let's say it takes a microsecond. Then if you have some gain at 1 megahertz, what that means is you produce a signal here, you amplify it, and you try to feed back the fluctuations that are occurring at 1 megahertz. But by the time you're feeding it back, that fluctuation has shifted from being positive to negative. Right? It's gone through half a cycle. And now you're trying to, feed, you're trying to give negative feedback, but because of the phase shift, it's now positive feedback. And instead of suppressing the, the fluctuations, you actually increase them. Because any system has some finite time delay, it's necessary for the gain to go to zero at the frequency that corresponds to 1 over that time delay. So typically, the gain is largest at low frequencies. And then there's some electronics filter that causes uh, this value g to decrease at higher and higher frequencies. So a low-pass filter, an amplifier and a low-pass filter is an example of such a system. And the longer the time delay in this control system, the lower the frequency at which that gain has to be 0. And that typically reduces the amount of gain you can get at DC. A bit of background, um, we won't go into any, any more of that theory than that. OK, so what can you use as a reference frequency? There's two things we'll talk about, a cavity and um, molecu molecular transition. There are other options. You can use another laser as a reference, uh, for example. But we've talked about cavities and molecular transitions already in this, in this class, so let's look at how they can be used as reference frequencies. 
Um, an optical cavity has a well-defined resonant frequency, so we can use that as our reference. Shine the laser in, see if it resonates in the cavity. If it doesn't, uh, if we can find a way to measure how far it is from resonating in the, how far the frequency is from the resonant frequency, then we can uh, use that optical cavity as our reference. So that frequency is determined by the optical path length. So we'd want to make sure that our cavity has a stable optical path length. That the index of the air in the cavity, or the glass, or whatever we have in there, and the length of the cavity are not fluctuating. If they are, if we have a noisy environment that our cavity is fluctuating in, we'll just transfer that frequency noise onto our laser. Okay, so you can evacuate the cavity. Um, you can, as I mentioned, isolate the system from thermal and acoustic and all the other noises which would, which would influence the cavity. Um, but how is, how is doing that any different than, I mean, the reason we have the laser frequency noise to begin with is because the laser cavity itself is fluctuating. So if we're going to go to all the effort to minimize the fluctuations in this reference cavity, why not just minimize the fluctuations in the laser cavity itself? Any thoughts? I think that could apply equally well to the laser cavity itself. So let me just draw what we've got. We've got a laser, but say the mirrors are moving around. We'll think of it as the mirrors moving around. It could be fluctuations of the index of refraction and the material inside. Um, and that light comes out goes to our experiment, we pick off some of it, and we compare it to a cavity, our reference cavity over here, and we somehow get an error signal that we feed back, and maybe we have an actuator on one of the mirrors so that we can stabilize this, this cavity. Okay, if we don't do anything special, this cavity is also going to have motion fluctuations, and all we're going to do is transfer the fluctuations of this cavity onto that one. So maybe we put this on in a very quiet room in a very uh, thermally isolated environment, decoupled from mechanical motion as much as we can, and we make this really quiet, and then we transfer that stability onto the laser cavity. What's different about the two cavities? Yeah, so the laser itself has a lot more than just two mirrors. It has some laser gain material, not drawn as some energy source pumping that, likely some cooling water, cooling it, all these other things that are necessary for it to operate as a laser. Um, and those may be the things introducing the noise. If you have turbulent flow of water over your laser crystal, and that's causing vibrations, you can't just get rid of the water. Your crystal would overheat. But you can have another cavity over here that doesn't need to have that cooling, and therefore is much quieter, 
and we can transfer the noise of this onto our laser. That's one example. Other reasons are this might be a commercial product that you buy where you don't have access to the cavity because it's all bolted together, whereas this is something you might build up. Um, or there may, may be other constraints that cause you to want to separate the two functions, the laser operation and the, the frequency control. So here's an example of a reference cavity used for this, this uh, function. This is the LIGO reference cavity. That's the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. So you can see here a vacuum chamber. And inside the vacuum chamber, um, you see a glass window there. This box over here says light wave. That's the laser. Um, this chamber contains a reference cavity. If you open up the chamber, this is what you see. So cutaway view shows layers of gold foil, concentric cylinders of gold foil. In the center is a glass cylinder made of a material called invar. And that has a hole drilled through it. So it's, it's, it's a tube. Uh, but it's a, just a big chunk of glass with a narrow hole drilled through it and then mirrors glued on essentially to either end, and that's the cavity. And when locking the laser to this cavity, the free-running frequency noise, which is given by this green curve, gets suppressed by up to five orders of magnitude. So at low frequencies, it gets suppressed by about five orders of magnitude. That means the gain is about 100,000. At higher frequencies, there's less and less suppression, and not shown here, so they would actually meet, and the two curves would become the same uh, above a few hertz. Uh, why do they? Why is the amount of gain decreasing? Yeah, that's designed that way. It has to go to zero up at a few hertz because of the time lag involved in the, the control circuit. Um, What do you suppose all the gold foil shells are for? They are highly conductive, but it's not their electrical conductivity. It's of interest. It's their thermal reflectivity. These are actually thermal shields. If you ever see like a, you know, spacecraft that are wrapped in like gold, thin gold foil, it's the same reason. It's uh, just to reflect thermal radiation. So it's, it's an insulator. This is a big thermos. So a thermos should have a couple features. It should be evacuated so you don't get conduction of heat uh, through the material. And this is evacuated. It's in a vacuum chamber. Uh, you'd still get conduction, or you'd still get transfer of heat due to black body radiation. So the walls of this thing are at room temperature. Room temperature varies. And they heat up the material that's inside of it. So by putting these uh, reflective surfaces, that reflects the incoming radiation. What the, the cylinder sees when it looks out is it sees the black body radiation that it emitted itself reflected off of this cylinder rather than the, the radiation from the walls. And so there's several layers of thermal radiation shielding.
Okay, so that minimizes uh, thermal fluctuations of the material. Now this glass rod that I said was called invar, that's the type of glass, um, it's a spacer that defines the length between the mirrors. Invar, has anyone heard of invar? Uh, it's a type of glass, it's the characteristic or the, the distinguishing characteristic of it is it has zero thermal expansion coefficient at room temperatures. It doesn't mean it, so what that means is it's uh, delta L over L as a function of T has, so normally, normally that would be linear, right? The slope of that is alpha, the thermal expansion coefficient. So that's typical. So invar has a point where the slope is zero that's close to room temperature. So for small fluctuations around room temperature, there's no change in the length. So why is that desirable? Yeah, so first thing you try to do is minimize the changes in temperature, but there's always going to be some residual change. So then you try to minimize how that couples here to the cavity length. Okay, and so all these things are necessary in order to make this uh, you know, a million times more stable than the laser cavity. Well, so here's an example of that. Um, here is the laser system that's used in advanced LIGO. That's an upgrade to uh, LIGO that's being installed in the next year or so. It starts with a non-planar ring oscillator. That's a particular type of laser that's known for being very, uh, very stable to begin with. That pumps uh, an amplifier. This is a well, this is actually another oscillator. This, this pumps uh, another laser. I shouldn't say pumps. It's the same frequency as the output of this laser. So it gets amplified in this other laser. It's called injection locking. That goes into another higher power stage. So there's more amplification here. And you end up with a very high power, about 200 watts of output, that then go through this, uh, this reference cavity here. This is called a pre-mode cleaner in terms of what people in LIGO call it, but it's a reference cavity, and it's um, the light reflected from that reference cavity is detected, and you can see from this arrow feeds back to the cavity. So this cavity here is actually following the laser cavity rather than the other way around. So this is not a reference cavity, but rather this is very long. This is about 12 meters in length. Whereas this is about uh, one centimeter in round trip path. By having a longer path length, uh, you get lower frequency, uh, lower frequency low pass filtering inside the laser cavity or narrower line width. So that passively isolates or, or passively filters the laser frequency jitter that couples through. So you have a very narrow line width for the transmission of this cavity. So if you have jitter, only the uh, on-resonant 
frequencies pass through. And then that gets picked off. There's a reference cavity here. And that reference cavity is used to feed back to the original NPRO laser. So that's the first reference. Um, and then what's not shown is there's um, an additional cavity downstream that is used to feed back and control um, the frequency of the laser here. So there's a frequency adjuster called an acousto-optic modulator. And so you have one reference cavity over here, which is actually very big and is very stable at low frequencies, but not very stable at high frequencies. And that's used to stabilize the laser at low frequencies. And then that stabilization, stabilized laser is fed into this reference cavity, which stabilizes it at high frequencies through there. So that's an example of multiple reference cavities, each one um, sort of optimized for a different frequency range. And here's a plot of the noise, the, the laser frequency noise in the system. Uh, the blue is the free running laser frequency noise. The uh, red one is the uh, stabilized laser frequency noise. So again, you can see about here, about seven orders of magnitude, seven, no, three orders of magnitude improvement in the laser frequency noise at low frequency and then at high frequency. Again, the gain rolls off and you get no, no improvement. Um, there's room for improvement here because the ultimate limiting factor here is the detector noise, which is this black curve. So that's things like shot noise. So the fundamental sources of noise. You can never improve the stability beyond that of your detectors. Okay, so a little bit about how these error signals get generated. Um, so we have a reference cavity, but how do you how do you measure the frequency of the laser relative to that reference cavity? So to understand this, uh, we'll consider the superposition of two fields, E1 and E2, that have amplitudes E1 and E2, and phases phi1 and phi2. So the phasor sum of these two things is E total. And what we actually detect is not an electric field, but an intensity. So that's the magnitude of the phasor squared. Okay, and so when you take this sum and you take its magnitude squared, you get terms that look like E1 squared, terms that look like E2 squared, and then you get the cross terms. And the cross terms have a dependence on the phase difference. That's just, that's interference. That's what you get in any two-beam interferometer. Um, and the idea is that somehow we'll arrange for one of these phases to depend on the round-trip phase shift in the cavity, and the other one to not depend on the round-trip phase shift in the cavity. And then the difference between them will give us a measure of the round-trip phase shift in the cavity. Um, and we can use that as a feedback signal. OK, so consider a cavity that has transmission peaks like this. And then imagine the spectrum of your laser, and we'll treat it, for the moment, we'll just treat it as a delta function. 
at a particular frequency. So that laser would either be resonant, off-resonant, or somewhere in the side of that resonance. And now if we modulate that laser frequency, if we put it through an electro-optic modulator that adjusts its, its frequency, uh, we've seen before that that's equivalent to putting sidebands on the laser. So adding frequency components that are above and below that laser frequency. And what I've drawn is frequency modulation where the sidebands are out of phase. So one's pointing up, one's pointing down. And now when our laser is on resonance with the cavity, the sidebands will not be. They'll be sitting off resonance. And what that means is, because this is plotting the transmission of the cavity, when the laser is transmitted, the sidebands won't be. And when the laser is on the side of this resonance, so it's partially transmitted, that means it's partially reflected, we can look at the reflected light and compare the, the phase of the carrier to the sidebands. The carrier will get a phase shift due to it being inside the cavity. The sidebands won't. Um, so let's see that. The reflected field from a cavity, we've worked this out in the past. I'll just quote the result here. Um, there's a term that's directly reflected from the cavity. And there's a term that comes from the light bouncing around inside the cavity and then leaking, leaking back out the input mirror. Well, the term that, leaks or, that goes inside the cavity gets a phase shift that depends on the length of the cavity. And in fact, if we plot the angle of this phaser, that angle looks like this. It has a sharp transition right around resonance. Okay, so we can understand that here's the cavity. Light goes in, rattles around. Every time it comes around, a little bit leaks out. Okay, so what we have at the output Think of the phasor sum of the directly reflected light, r times e naught, that's the first term. And then each additional component that's been inside this cavity for one more round trip acquires some additional phase and gets added to this. So let's say this is the phasor from light that's been in the, round, in the cavity one additional round trip. Maybe one more, one more. And there's always a constant phase shift acquired after a round trip. And so each successive phaser gets an additional phase shift. Okay, so all these, try to draw it. So when these things add up, And that round trip phase shift is not an integer multiple of 2 pi, then they add up to produce some net reflected field. It looks like that. As you change this phase, you start to unwrap this spiral. And in fact, as you unwrap it, um, Eventually, they all add up with the opposite phase as the input. And then as you continue to go past resonance, they're going to 
add up over on this side. So as that phase shift goes through 180 degrees and back, this phaser is going to sweep through zero, and the phase shift of the reflected light is going to go from positive to negative very rapidly. That's what we see here. Okay, so here's the same plot. But because we're comparing light, let's say we have our laser carrier nearly on resonance, so it's sitting somewhere over here near the resonance of this transmission. The sidebands are over here, and they're not resonant. The sidebands have a, see a phase angle that's pretty much independent of the, their frequency, whereas the carrier's phase angle is highly dependent on its frequency. So by comparing the phases of the two, um, we're essentially treating the sidebands as references with no dependence on the, the cavity length. And the carrier frequency relative to the cavity length uh, is being measured. Okay, so we have uh, this term right here. This is the interference term. It comes from interfering the sidebands and the carrier. The phase shifts are going to be, um, because the carrier and sidebands are at different frequencies, this phase difference has a, has a time dependence. Okay, it's going to be oscillating at the, at the modulation frequency. So we multiply that by sine omega t, where omega is the, the modulation frequency. This is exactly what a, a lock and amplifier does. It's going to pick off, or, uh, pick off the components of this signal here that are at the modulation frequency. That is, it's going to find uh, the phase difference of the carrier and the sidebands and not any other phase fluctuations in the system. Okay, so you did this on the homework uh, for lock and amplifiers, where you multiplied by a sinusoidal wave, you integrated and low pass filtered. When you do that, you get a term at twice the modulation frequency and one that doesn't depend on the modulation frequency at all. This term gets filtered away because it's rapidly oscillating, leaving you with this term, the static phase shift, the static phase difference between the carrier and the sidebands. And again, if the sidebands are over here and the carrier is in the middle, the static phase difference is the difference in the angle of this, uh, this phaser. So it's entirely due to the deviation of the carrier from the resonant frequency. As that changes, it rapidly changes the phase of the carrier, whereas the sidebands, as the frequency changes, their, their uh, phase angle does not change. So this phi s can be thought of as the phase shift of the carrier going around the, in the cavity. And so for small phase shifts, sine of phi is approximately equal to phi. We've got this one half. So the demodulated signal is proportional to the phase shift of the carrier in the cavity. We want a phase shift of 0, modulo 2 pi. If the laser frequency is too high, we get a positive phase shift. If it's too low, we get a negative phase shift. So this is an error signal.
So here's our phasor diagram for the carrier and the modulation sidebands. The carrier is drawn slightly off resonant, so it has a particular phase shift for the, the carrier that's reflected from the cavity. It's given by this, this value here on the plot. Whereas the sidebands see essentially no phase shift. Um, they're at zero. And as you tune the laser frequency and sweep through resonance, um, you're plotting out this, this curve when you record your demodulation, demodulation signal. Okay, so there's a paper that I posted that I asked you to, to look at, boundary overhaul locking. It's just an, it's a nice description of this, this whole process and how to experimentally realize it. So uh, I have some figures from the paper that, that I'll explain, and these form the, the basis for uh, how this works. Um, so again, here's the transmission of a cavity. So these are two different uh, frequencies being transmitted. They're separated by one free spectral range. And this is the transmission. So if we plot the reflection, the reflection is the, is the inverse of this. So we zoom in around resonance. What we find is the reflection coefficient goes to zero and goes back up. And now we consider the time domain instead of the frequency domain. When we modulate the laser frequency, think of it as, OK, here's the laser frequency. It's at some value. As we modulate that laser frequency, it's like dithering it back and forth. Right? So if we observe the amount of power that's reflected as we dither that frequency, um, the reflected power is going to vary by an amount that depends on the slope of this reflectivity function. And so over here, the slope is positive. Over here, the slope is negative. So on one side of resonance, we get uh, reflected power fluctuations that are in phase with our frequency modulation. And on the other side, we get them 180 degrees out of phase. And right in the middle, when we're on resonance, we get no fluctuations in the, laser, in the reflected power as we do the laser frequency. And so that's how we infer where we are in frequency relative to this uh, center frequency of the resonance. And here's experimentally what it looks like. So the laser gets modulated by this, uh, labeled as a pockle cell here, could be any frequency modulator. A local oscillator is just a uh, usually radio frequency signal that's producing the modulation on this, this laser. So this is the sinusoidal variation of the laser frequency. So the modulated laser goes into the cavity. We pick off some of the reflected light and measure it on a photodetector. That gives us an output, a voltage, which is proportional to the output power. We then multiply that voltage by that from the local oscillator. And this is what goes on inside of a lock-in amplifier. That multiplication, followed by low-pass filtering, will cause the component of this signal here that's at the frequency of the local oscillator to get passed. All other frequencies, when we do this multiplication, we get the sum and difference frequencies between these two signals. 
So any component that's not at the local oscillator frequency will not have a sum or difference at DC and will get blocked by that low-pass filter. Okay, so what passes through this low-pass filter is the component of this uh, detected signal at the local oscillator frequency. It's, it's this, how much deviation there is in power due to us modulating the laser frequency. And that's what gets amplified and fed back to the laser. So here's a plot of the reflected intensity as a function of frequency. This is uh, the resonance of the cavity. And this is what the phase looks like. So you see the phase shift goes from here negative to positive as it goes through resonance. So uh, explained that a few slides earlier that you can tell the uh, side of resonance you're on by uh, whether the reflected light is in phase or out of phase with your frequency modulation. I'm going to skip that. Okay, so that's what we call relative frequency reference. We compare the frequency of a cavity to the frequency of a laser. Really, the laser's frequency is dominated by a cavity. So we're comparing two cavities together. One we're making very stable and comparing to the free-running laser and uh, adjusting that free-running frequency to match that of the stable cavity. Um, that works well, particularly at high frequencies, where the laser cavity is uh, has too much inertia to move around rapidly. But at very low frequencies, like days, months, the frequency of the length of a laser cavity or any reference cavity can drift. Right? Eventually, as the surrounding temperature changes, let's say you go from summer to winter, um, and the temperature of the building changes, that will change the temperature of the laser cavity. Despite all the thermal insulation, eventually the laser cavity will change and will follow it. Um, at very low frequencies, fluctuations can still uh, propagate through your, your system into the reference cavity. So an alternative, when absolute stability is necessary, very low frequency stability, the ability to record the same frequency month to month, year to year, um, is locking to an atomic or, or a molecular resonance. So we can use the atomic absorption or molecular absorption line as a frequency reference. Um, and some advantages are that molecular absorption or atomic absorption, um, the frequency at which that occurs is some absolute value that's governed by the sort of quantum mechanical properties of the material. So if you have iodine, um, the energy levels of iodine are what they are. They're the same for any iodine, you know, in any, any continent that you're on, at any, more or less at any temperature you're at, um, they don't change. So they form a nice absolute reference. Uh, one of the disadvantages is that because, well, advantages or disadvantages, there's only a single resonant frequency. Right? If you're trying to lock to the Blomer alpha line of hydrogen, that's a single frequency. If your laser can't tune to that frequency, 
you can't really compare the two frequencies. So a cavity has a resonant every free spectral range. You can always find a resonance that your laser can lock to. That's not always the case with the molecular transition. Okay, so molecular iodine is, is a common uh, molecule that lasers are locked to. The uh, main reason is it has all these row vibrational transitions that are in the middle of the visible spectrum. So this is actually the uh, emission spectrum of molecular iodine. You can see that there's essentially pick a wavelength, there are some lines. And if you do some careful Doppler-free spectroscopy on that, you can find that although it looks kind of like a continuum, uh, there's actually very narrow hyperfine transitions that you can use as frequency references. So here's an example of an iodine locking experiment. Um, there's two iodine cells, one right there and one right there. So here's a better picture of an iodine cell, just a glass cylinder filled with iodine. Um, let's see, here's a laser right there and here's another laser. And all these optics basically steer the light through the iodine. There's a detector here and a detector there. Um, the reason there's two lasers and two iodine cells is there's two separate and independent lasers that are both being locked to iodine, and then you can, com can compare the frequency of the two lasers. And if they're both locked to the same frequency standard, they should both be the same frequency. So it's a way to measure how stable the laser frequency is by comparing it to another copy of itself. Okay, so from our classical electron oscillator model, we had a description of uh, the displacement of a charge due to a driving electric field. And because we treated there being some damping of this oscillator, there was this term minus i gamma omega in the denominator that gave rise to some line width so that the absorption line for this system has some finite width. And because there's this imaginary term, if we talk about the phase angle of this phaser, that phase angle has some structure around resonance. And just like the Fabry-Perot cavity, it's got a nice linear dependence as it goes through resonance. And it's very steep. And far from resonance, it's very flat. In fact, this plot looks almost the same as the reflection spectrum for a Fabry-Perot cavity. The only difference is this doesn't repeat. Whereas this, if this were a Fabry-Perot cavity, this structure would repeat every free spectral range. Okay, so if you, instead of look at the light reflected from a cavity, if you look at the light that transmits through, say, molecular iodine or some other atomic or molecular species that has uh, an absorption at a suitable frequency, you can use the exact same sort of servo system and locking electronics to lock to the frequency of absorption rather than the frequency of resonance of the cavity. So here's a paper that describes this. Um, this is pretty much the same system that was shown in the picture earlier. There's two lasers. Uh, what's not shown, well, it says identical systems. So each of these is independently locked to a uh, iodine cell. There's the iodine cell. 
you can see that these start off at 1064 nanometers. Those are neodymium-YAG lasers. Uh, one of the, this is a non-planar ring oscillator, NPRO, which is a very low noise system to start with. Frequency doubled to 532 nanometers. That's green. There's a lot of absorption in the iodine and the green. We saw that here. Right, so lots of absorption lines very closely spaced. So you can be assured that some of this light, if it's tuned over a very narrow frequency range, should be able to find an absorption line in the iodine. Um, that iodine is double-passed. So you can see the two different paths. Why is it double-passed? To get rid of the Doppler shift, to, to minimize, to get the natural line width of the transition as opposed to the Doppler broadened line width, that improves the frequency reference of your standard. And one of these is chopped, the other one is not. So much like the intermodulated fluorescence spectroscopy that we described, um, you're going to look for signals at the chopping frequency. But you're looking at the probe, which isn't chopped. So any signal you see must come from the effect of the pump. So it's a pump probe experiment. And that, uh, that signal then gets amplified and fed back to the laser. And so here, as you can see, plotted over very long time scales. I mentioned this absolute frequency stabilization is useful for long time scales. Um, so now instead of talking about kilohertz and megahertz corresponding to microseconds time scales, we're talking about minutes. If you compare on this detector the beat between these two lasers, so both lasers get picked off, get combined in the detector, and you measure the frequency of that beat note, without the locking electronics, that frequency difference, which is what you're observing, is drifting. Right? So you can see this. At slow frequencies, is drifting over 12 megahertz over the course of half an hour. And now, with the locking servos turned on, you can see it's stabilized. And there's a, because on this plot, you can't see any variation at all. They do a, a blow up of what that looks like. And you can see that what we call it line width. So sort of the RMS deviation between the, the laser frequencies is on the order of 10 kilohertz, as opposed to 10 megahertz. OK, so um, I will just end with a little plug. We're going to do this experiment in 220E next semester. So if you're interested in applying any of this, that's a two-credit graduate optics lab that you can take. And, and we'll get to do some of these interesting experiments. OK, so we'll end there. And uh, next time, we'll talk about uh, LIDAR. So I will put up notes tonight for that.